It's Islam. The deep questions. It's finished. Don't watch the television. Once your work is finished, find something constructive to add to your mind. History. Spirituality. Politics. It's pure Islam. In the first episode of the Battle of the Wills, we ended with a key question. How will you win this war? What should you armor yourself with? How should you proceed in this battle where you are overwhelmed by all of these distractions that weakens your will and divides them? This brings us to the older generations. Have you ever thought of the older generations and compared them to our generation? I mean, how did they live? For them to heat up the house, they need to go out, chop wood, bring it, lit up a fire. And for those of you who have rented a cabin sometime, you know that sometimes it can be pretty hard to light that fire up, especially if the wood is soaked in rain. Probably they needed to do this as well when they wanted to cook. So it wasn't only a question of warmth, but also for survival, for food. And this is only for uh, the warmth and uh, food. Now think you are a lady, a man living two, three hundred years ago, four hundred years ago, perhaps a thousand years ago. And you have a couple of kids, like five, six kids maybe. One is one year old, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old. And the one and the two, three small kids, they are crying, Mommy, Daddy, I want food. Wah, wah, now. What do you do? Today, you will have fired up the microwave and just fed them. Perhaps you have you would have spe- sent your oldest kid to the closest grocery store to buy some milk or some some bread and you would have fed them within 10 minutes. But five year, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, will this have been possible? There wouldn't, there wouldn't even be a refrigerator for you to open and look in. You needed to grind your own wheat. You needed to take care of everything that you had. Now this type of living was not confined to several hundred years ago. This happened for only a few decades ago, even here in Europe. One article I read described where the woman who wrote it was a 19-year-old lady who described how she lived her ordinary life when she was 50-60 years old, when she was 40-50 years old, like only 40-50 years ago. 
And in that time, this is probably post-World War II, or perhaps in between the World Wars, and they only, in Sweden, had only oranges during the winter, and very few of them. So they ate what was available at the market at the time for the season. Because there was not so much shipment of fruit from the other side of the world as it is today. And she describes how we, she, for example, once every two weeks or every three weeks had some extra money over. So she went to the meat store and bought a piece of meat and the seller, he wrapped it into some magazine and gave it to her. And she came home, she cooked the meat, she separated the fat and the bones, she fed her dog or her chickens or the animals that she had with these skin and fat and bones. And they ate the, the meat in the family. And then the magazine that was wrapped around the meat, she threw into the fireplace to generate some extra warmth in the house. So look at all of this work that today the modern man, the current human being, with one touch of the button, no, not even one touch of the button, it has become a fashion and a trend with IoT, the Internet of Things, where everything works automatically. It will turn on the lights or off the lights depending on the amount of light in the room, depending on the uh, sunshine. It will heat in your house depending on the weather forecast. So it's like intelligent. Oh, it will be sunny in the afternoon. So let me shut down the heat right now. So the owner will save some money. So you don't even need to think about this. You can buy any food, any fruit, and you can heat it up and warm it up with one touch of the button with the microwave. Now in the early days, early days, I mean a couple of centuries back, this was not the case. You had to go through a lot just to serve some dinner on the table. Today, pasta is a very common and um, appreciated uh, food, both for the parents and for the kids, because it's, it's cheap and it's fast to make. You boil it for a couple of minutes and it's done. A couple of centuries back, this was not the case. You had to grind the wheat, you had to prepare it, there were a lot of steps involved in just making this this pasta and this we see in everything not in the food only we see it in our entire culture in the clothes that we wear before you had to sue them or you had to go through a lot to buy them but usually you had them and then you patched them there is a anecdote where Ibn Abbas, 
he's passing through the streets and he sees Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was the caliph at the time, during his reign. He's standing by the road and he's patching up his shoes. And he says to Ibn Abbas, Ibn Abbas asks him first, Ya Amir al-Mu'minin, what are you doing? And Imam Ali answers, I'm patching my shoes because there are a hole in it. And then Imam Ali says, Ibn Abbas, Ibn Am, because Abbas, Ibn Abbas was the cousin of Imam Ali. He said, look at these shoes that I'm fixing. I swear by God that these shoes are more valuable to me than this caliphate. Now the point being that the caliph of that time, he fixed his own shoes. And this is what he did in those days. If you had holes in your clothes, you fixed them, you sewed them. There was no fashion or trend like this is the spring clothes, this is the autumn clothes, this is the winter clothes. No, you had your own clothes and you bought new clothes very seldom. You have in the maqtal that when Imam Hussain wanted to go out for the final battle, he asked for that special shirt that his mother Fatima Zahra had made for him during his youth. So they wear and save the clothes for a long period of time. And these were the clothes. Then you had the horses. Now it's common to have a car. You even lease it for three years. Every three years you change the car. In that time you had a horse. You had it for many years until it became sick. Or somehow it didn't cope anymore. So you had this mentality of saving and taking care of your things. And this goes on to to the modern age. Where you have for example Alam Amini who wrote the famous encyclopedia Ghadir Khum. Alam Amini was living during the 20th century. And what he did was this, if I remember correctly, it's 20 volume book, only with the hadiths of Ghadir, Ghadir Khum. And what he did was to travel around the entire, not only Middle East, but the entire Asia, to collect all sorts of books that mentioned the hadith of Ghadir Khum. As far as India, he went to collect scarce books spread around the Islamic countries. So there's a lot of effort brought into making just this book, his magnum opus. Now, why am I saying this? Because the modern, the current man, will he even have the strength to take Aloma Majlis's Biharul Anwar, which is 100 volumes, collecting all of the ahadith relating to Ahl al-Bayt. And his idea was that I will save them all, like a library, in my work. And then the following scholars, the scholars living after me, will have to go and categorize them, whether they are authentic or they are weak or what the chain is. 
So the Bihar al-Anwar is around a hundred volumes. Would I even be able to just turn the pages of these hundred volumes? Now Allama Majlisi lived during the 17th century. So this was pen and paper for hand, writing down everything. I had a talk with a professor and lecturer and teacher at the Hausa, a very, very special man. His name was uh, Hujat al-Islam Ibrahim Araki, and he had an astonishing akhlaq. I have not seen a person with such a sweet morals as his, and he was very, very educated. He told me that in his youth, he was the number A student, and this is in Iran, so in the concour for the entire for the entire country, he was like top ten or twenty, top twenty or something like this, and he had the opportunity to select any uh, any type of education in whatever school that he wanted, and he was thinking about becoming a doctor but something happened and he decided to become a spiritual doctor instead so he chose the Hawza Ilmiya way and in our chat he mentioned that because I was speaking about how in this modern age it's so easy for us to collect all of the writings that we have you can search them you can search inside the books you can search with the search engines, DuckDuckGo, Google, whatever, you can search through a lot of libraries at the same time, and you can instantly find what you want. And you can write, you can write really fast on the keyboard. And what you write, it's easy to find it later on. And he said, you are true in what you say, you're correct. However, I must say that there is a consequence from this. And I see this from the students in the Hausa, that they have become lazy. They do not have the same energy and passion and ambition like the old days. They have become lazy because they are so used to this technology and the computers and the iPads and whatnot. I remember listening to Ostad Fatiminiya. When he was going to find, he was investigating and researching about Ishq. You know, this intense love. And he wanted to see how Ishq is featured in the Ahadith. So he said, in that time, there were no computers, nothing was digitalized. So I sat down and I turned page by page in all of our ahadith collections until I found around five hadith talking about ishq positively and around five hadith talking about ishq negatively look at this effort being put into just researching something I also read another article that had researched and uh, looked at kids, young kids, I think less than five years old. And this article 
in the interviews that they had made and the research had come to this conclusion that kids today cannot be bothered to press a keyboard, you know, the computer keyboard. They find it hard because it is too much resistance, like physical resistance. Compared to what? Compared to the virtual keyboard on the iPad, where you don't have any traveling space when you push the button. It's just a virtual button, so you just tap it lightly on the screen. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Because I'm talking about willpower. Where you, in this modern time, your will is weak. And your will is divided. So you think that you cannot become. I cannot be like that. Now in the previous episode we mentioned Nikola Tesla and his autobiography, My Inventions. Now Nikola Tesla had a trait common for many great people. And that was his strong will and his inability to quit something that he had started. He writes like this, quote, I had a veritable mania for finishing whatever I began, which often got me into difficulties. On one occasion, I started to read the works of Voltaire when I learned, to my dismay, that there were close to 100 large volumes in small print which that monster had written while drinking 72 cups of black coffee per dime. It had to be done. But when I laid aside the last book, I was very glad and said, Nevermore. End quote. He did this during the summer of his youth, during the summer vacation when he was off from the school. How did you and I spend our summers? How do you and I spend our summers today? Imagine going through all of these works. He finished in one summer what many of us has not, have not read in our entire lifetime. Now what is the result of this willpower? I read an interesting story where Abu Sa'id Abu Khair this wonder poet and mystic of the 11th century. He was formerly an Islamic scholar, but he left his studies at the age of 23 to pursue the path of Erfan. He was a poet who contributed extensively to the spiritual evolution. And, you know, he was into so much into poetry that he requested on his funeral that he should not recite Qur'an, but recite poetry instead. Quote, What's sweeter than this in the world? Friend met friend, and the lover joined his beloved. That was all sorrow, this is all joy. Those were all words, this is all reality. End quote. Abu Sa'id Abu Khair went to the hammam, the public bath, which was costumes for those days, together with Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina, known in the West as Avicenna, he was this Persian polymath in the 11th century, 
who is regarded as one of the most significant doctors, astronomers, thinkers and writers of the Islamic Golden Age, and he is also the father of the early modern medicine. Of the 450 works, which is believed to be written by him, 240 of them have survived, including 150 on philosophy and 40 on medicine. Now, just a parenthesis, think about it. Have you looked at the highest uh, authority in a country today? I'm talking about the supreme judge or all of the judges. What do they wear in the USA, in the UK, probably in many other countries? They wear this black robe, sometimes a cloak. And when you graduate in the USA, you have this special hat. These were the clothes of Avicenna, of Ibn Sina. This is the robe, the cloak, the abaya, and the amama, the turban. He is so influential that he has even influenced the clothes of the most honorable office in the country. They were in the hammam, in the public bath. And Abu Sa'id... He takes one of these lava stones, you know, these black stones that you use to scrub your feet. And he takes it and he throws it in the air. And the stone stays in the air. And then he says to Ibn Sina, Why do you think that the stone will not fall down, but stay floating in the air? Now, Ibn Sina, who is Ibn Sina? He is this astonishing mind who with his mind, with his tafakkur, with his contemplation and his reflections, he reached where the mystics reached with their visions. One of the Arafah says that wherever I went with my vision, that blind man came with his stick. He was referring to Ibn Sina and with a stick he meant his aql, his reasoning, meaning that wherever I came with my visions and my mukashafat and my unveilings and my dreams and whatever I saw, he reached the same point only using his stick, his reasoning. So this is Ibn Sina. So Abu Sayyid, Abu Khair throws this stone and asks Ibn Sina, how does it not fall down. Now Ibn Sina says, Abu Sa'id, your nafs, yourself, your souls, will prevents the stone from falling down. I'm paraphrasing here, but what he says is that that stone's will to fall down or the earth's gravity, the earth's gravitation, the earth's will to pull that stone down is weaker than your soul's will to let it stay in the air. The battle of the wills. Abu Sa'id was battling gravitation. What am I battling?
on the topic of Ibn Sina, there's another interesting story where Ibn Sina once going through the market finds a special youth. This youth he is going and asks one of the shops, can I buy some fire from you? The shopkeeper being amazed asks, even if I was to sell you this fire, how will you transport it? The kid says, I have some coal with me. If you light the coal so it starts to fire, I can hold it in my hand with the downside that is cold so it won't burn my skin and bring it home. Ebenezina liked this. He took the kid in and made him his disciple. And this kid was with him for several years. Now this kid saw everything of Ibn Sina and he was so fascinated by his master that one day he asked his master, O oh master, with all of this knowledge that you have, why don't you proclaim yourself a prophet? Surely the people will believe in you. Ibn Sina didn't say anything, he kept quiet. The days passed, the weeks passed, and the season passed. Until one winter, in the middle of the night, Ibn Sina woke his disciple up and told him, Can you go out and fetch some water for me to make wudu? The ablution for prayers. And the kid looked out and there was a snowstorm. One meter of snow had fallen. It was windy. It was really cold. And the disciple started to move around. And he made an excuse. He said, I'm, I feel a bit of weakness in my body. It's very cold outside. I cannot go now, it's, it's too cold. Ibn Sina didn't say anything. Some minutes passed, a quarter, 20, 50, 30 minutes, something like that. And then they heard, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. The Mu'azzin continued as Ibn Sina and his disciple were listening until he reached this part. Ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. Ibn Sina looked at his disciple and said, Do you remember when you asked me if I was going to proclaim myself a prophet because I had all of this knowledge and the people will surely follow me? Well, you have been my disciple for all of these years and you were not even prepared to go out for one minute and fetch some water for me to make an ablution. You said it was too cold. Yet this Muazzin, this old man, walks from his home 10 15 20 minutes he walks in the snow in the storm and climbs up of this minaret and he 
testifies to the prophethood of a person who lived 400 years ago. How strong was the willpower of this disciple, being in the presence of such a marvel of the time, having a master being beside him, yet not being able to open the door and face some coldness. That is one battle. We have an even greater battle in the battle of Karabala, where the general of Yazid's army, Omar ibn Sa'd, was a person who had grown up with Imam Hussein meaning they were close in age and they were kids together. And on one point in this battle, Omar ibn Sa'd turns to Imam Hussein and says this, he says, quote, I know that killing you is equal to going to hell. But what should I do? I want the wheat of Ray. End quote. Meaning he had been promised by Ibn Marjane the government of Ray, modern Tehran, if he led this army against Imam Hussein. And his will to reach that was stronger than his conviction that Imam Hussein is the Imam of the time and killing him leads to hell. He could not say no, Omar ibn Sa'd. He knew that he is selecting hell. Put him in contrast with Hur ibn Yazid al-Riyahi, another general of the, of the army of Yazid, who saw himself between hell and paradise. And uh, one narrator says, because Hur was a very brave man, but he saw Hur drawing aside from the army and shivering like a stick in the storm. And he told Hur, what's going on with you? And Hur says this famous line that I see myself between paradise and hell, and I swear by God that I will not select hell. And then he jumps on his horse and bursts against the front line and towards Imam Hussein to repent. That is yet another will. Now, I may look down upon this disciple and say, uh, he was so weak, how could he not go and fetch some water? But I mean, how strong am I when God himself makes the spiritual azan, the azan to my heart, during the fajr, yet I have trouble lifting a blanket. Why do I have trouble lifting this blanket? Because I have not prepared myself. My evening was not the evening of the Prophet. My night was not a night where my ruh, my spirit, decided that now is the time to travel to the higher dimensions and visit his Lord in the sleep, in the dreams. So it comes back full of energy and wakens up my body to the prayer. No, my evening was the evening of the television. To quote Malcolm X, 
the station of the television. It was a maqam. It's a maqam for me. The maqam of the television or the maqam of the social media, of the Instagram and the Facebook and the, the mobile phone. And that was my evening. So when I'm going to Malakut in my sleep, I'm bringing with myself the burden of mulk, of dunya, of this world. And it's heavy. And there I sit. And my soul, my spirit, doesn't go higher than the roof of my room. And it stays there. And then it falls down. And down. And it cannot wake up for Fajr. This is the reality behind the curtain. This is the reality that I do not see. But somewhere inside, I feel it. Now I may look down on Omar ibn Sa'ad and say, how could he choose Ray over Imam? But I need to ask myself, is there living a small Omar ibn Sa'ad within myself? Every time I go to work and I let my work distract me from the Holy Presence. Every time I commit some sort of weakness in my work, if I'm distracted, if I'm somehow, some way, allowing myself to select it before God. In what way am I different from, from Omar ibn Sa'ad? These things do not happen overnight. They build up over time. Somewhere, sometime, Omar ibn Sa'ad was sitting down and thinking, Ray is a very beautiful city. I want to go there. No, I want to live there. No, I want to rule over it. And this feeling, this idea, gradually, this image that came to him, gradually overtook him until he could see it with his eyes. And when he started to see it, he could see his hands grasping it, reaching for it, almost feeling it. And in such a scenario, when the image of this, this city is in front of your eyes, the image of the Imam is behind that. That becomes a curtain from you, between you and the Imam. So you cannot, even if you understand and accept the Imam, you do not have the willpower to surrender to what is good. You don't have it. You wasted it. You gave it away. You let something else rule over you, thinking that you will rule over others. Now, going back to Ibn Sina, one of his last books, Al-Asharat wal-Tanbihat, or The Book of Directives and Remarks, he has a section in this book devoted to the stations and the maqamat of the mystics and orafa. And this is interesting, because it's re- it relates to the question of this episode. How will I strengthen my will? Now in the first episode... We spoke of how this feeling of isolation 
and alienation and loneliness, loneliness can occur in me. And this Ibn Sina calls irada. Irada means will. What it means is that you in your loneliness, your loneliness becomes so intense that a will emerges among all of these wills that you have that is so strong that it drives you towards the court of Allah. This is the first step. What is the next step is that you need to make Riyadha. Ibn Sina writes that Riyadha is required to reach three goals. Number one, to clear the path of all but the real. Number two, to subjugate the commanding self, the nafsul ammara, to the contended self, al nafsul mutma'inna. Number three, to render the heart subtle for awareness. Now, what does riyadha mean? Originally, it's an Arabic word. It means exercise. Today, it's used for physical exercise. But the Orafa borrowed this word in their terminology. And with it, they mean spiritual exercise. Meaning preparing the soul to reach the light of ma'rifa, of inner knowledge. So if you have, when the irada arises, you need to follow it up with riyadha to reach three ends, to reach three goals. Now these three goals, the first, to clear the path of all but real, but the real, it means to remove all external matters that distracts you and causes your negligence, your ghafla. It means removing the obstacles. Number two, to subjugate the nafsul amara into nafsul mutma'inna, it is about balance of the inner forces and removal of the agitations from the soul. And the third, to render the heart subtle for awareness, it relates to the qualitative changes in the soul. Now what do these three goals mean practically? Like what should I do? What can I do right now in this moment? What weapons and armor should I arm myself with? The first, removing the obstacles. Practically, this means the concept of Zohd. Zohd is asketism. Now, it's not in the Islamic sense about shunning everything, selling everything, and moving into a cave. No, it means that you need to control it. You need to remove it. Some things that occupy your mind, it needs to be removed or controlled somehow. Example, if you like to watch movies, then make a oath with yourself, a promise, that I will first read this book, then I will watch this movie. 
Now relating to this, I can give a personal example. There was a Spider-Man movie coming that I was recommended because there was some interesting uh, things and messages brought in between the lines that Hollywood were were presenting, and that interested me. So I wanted to watch this movie, but I told myself, okay, I was at that time reading Alama Mortada Askari's book on the realm of the book and traditions. And I said to myself, when I have finished reading this book, I will reward myself by watching the Spider-Man movie. So I read the book, all of it, except the last 20 pages. Then I stopped. And I looked at it and I said, no, when I read it, I can watch the movie. Some days I was really tired and I just wanted to turn on the movie. But I said, no, I haven't read the final 20 pages. One week went, two weeks, three weeks, one month. Now it has gone one year until last night when I finished reading the book. Now, how do you think that I feel? I have no interest whatsoever in the Spider-Man movie anymore. And if I wanted to watch it now, I could, I can watch it. But it will not have that same delight. That same sucking me into this fictional world that Marvel has drawn for me. It won't be that case anymore. I will watch it like an outsider with half interest. I will not worship it. Like the hadith we mentioned in the first episode. I will merely see it. I will... Okay, it's something like a tree that I see and I pass. I will not stand by the tree and be consumed with it. That's the difference. This is an example of Zohd. Where you remove the obstacles. If you know that watching uh, Instagram will make me negative or watching this account on Instagram makes me negative. Remove it. If you know that watching social media will create darkness inside you, then put up some rules. For example, have zones in your home where you can watch. For example, don't allow yourself have the sofa and the bed like a mobile-free zone. You can put the phone on a table and every time you want to watch the social media, you need to go a couple of meters to this table and standing watch the phone and then you leave it there and go back. So you watch it, but you make zot because it you need to actively arise and walk and stand and look. You will not have this lazy laid back feeling where where the evil forces can creep inside you as you watch. This is the difference. This is Zohd, number one. Number two, practically, number two was to transform the nafsul ammara into nafsul mutma'ina. It means it can be several things. It can be worship infused with presence of heart. Reflection, tafakkur. Some melody that serves the strengthening of the self accompanied by words that have effect on the heart. Such as reciting the Quran 
the idea, the supplications, some special poetry, all of this can help. Speeches, lectures that have an impact on the heart, all of these help to tame the self and the soul into becoming content. And the third, to transform the soul and render the subtle heart, it is aided and accomplished by subtle thoughts, meaning positive thinking, meaning thinking about the positive, thinking about the delicate ideas, and it is accompanied with a chast love. I remember reading a passage from one of Paulo Coelho's books where he stated that 90% of your thoughts today are the same as they were yesterday. So if you are stuck in a negative loop, it means that you will go on digging yourself deeper into this negative darkness. And this will affect your heart negatively with darkness. So you need to have the irada, you need to have the riyada, you need to have the zod, and you need to train yourself into combating the negative dark thoughts with positive thoughts. For how long? Now we have different ahadith. Imam Sadiq salam, he speaks in one hadith about one week, in another hadith about 40 days. And in yet another hadith about one year. What we can understand from this is that after one week of effort, you will see some sort of result. After 40 days of effort, you will start to bear the fruits. And after one year, this will become tightly and firmly rooted inside your soul. This firm rooting inside one's soul, becoming a part of one's nature, in the terms of akhlaq and morals, is called malaka. Now what happens when your will is focused, when your will is not divided, when your will is aimed at one goal and drives your entire vessel all your bodily organs, all the members of your internal kingdom against this aim and goal. What happens when all of the traits that you have become positive and become a malaka for you? What will the outcome be in the battle of the wills? Now there is a secret here. A subtle but important difference between having one's will divided or, even worse, in the cause of darkness, compared to having your will united and aimed towards the light. There's a difference between these two and there's a secret that will empower you, the human being, and lead you to victory. More about this secret and the outcome of one strong will 
and what it leads to will be explored in the next episode of the Battle of Wills.